Well, so I guess my my number one draft pick for the most important change in this document has to do with distributional weighting. Mm -hmm. So this comes from just the idea that as a society, we have a preference to, however you want to put it, reduce poverty, reduce inequality. You can see it in our progressive tax system, our transfer system, all of that. The question is whether those preferences should be baked into cost-benefit analysis. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. On today's show, we take a deep dive into a new executive order released April 6th on modernizing the regulatory review process and implications for the climate and energy space. Noah Kaufman joins my colleague, Joseph Mikett, to help us understand this proposal, the first major revision since 2003. These changes cover regulations across the federal government. They include a lower discount rate and a higher bar for what regulations will qualify for a more intense review. The discount rate is used to account for future costs and benefits in the present day and will have implications for future climate regulations. Noah is a senior research scholar with the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, and he served under President Biden as a senior economist on the Council of Economic Advisors. I'll turn it over to Joseph and Noah now. Last week, the administration released this draft for public review, Memorandum for Heads of Executive Departments and Establishments. This is meant to be, I think, the first major update to how the government does cost-benefit analysis for things like environmental regulation in a few decades. Is that correct? That's right. So since 2003 was the last time they updated this document. And basically, anytime the government comes out with a new regulation or, or program, there's usually reams of analysis behind it. So like last week, you know, the vehicle greenhouse gas emissions rules came out. There is a 688-page regulatory impact analysis that includes a cost-benefit analysis behind that regulation. And since the Reagan era, federal agencies have had to do that kind of analysis. And it's always really dangerous, I think, talking about cost-benefit analysis and how they're done by the government because the agencies have to do things in line with what the federal government is saying. But you have to estimate things that are like really hard to estimate, right? What is the value of lives lost? What is the, how should we incorporate risk into assessments of value? What really changes in this new guidance when you read it that the government is going to assess costs and benefits differently five years from now than it did five years ago? It's a really good question. I think you can answer it a few different ways. One answer is just this is guidelines for economic analysis, and you want the government to be doing science well. And to me, this is a massive improvement across all sorts of different dimensions in terms of, you know, the types of analyses that federal government agencies can do. So that just in itself is a big win, right? That's just better science. Nerds should rejoice. I do think there's a separate question which you may have been getting at, which is what is the practical effect on this of these changes on the federal policies that we'll see going forward? And that's a little bit harder to say because these analyses do not 
tell policymakers what to do, right? There's no, there's no like direct causation that I've ever witnessed in government where the policymakers are just waiting for the results of the cost benefit analysis and they'll say, all right, alternative two, you know, highest net benefits. I'll go with that one. It's mostly used sort of as a justification for actions. That said, it's also, especially in the climate space, has been used as a justification for inaction or for very incremental, slow action, right, for a host of different reasons. And a lot of that can be traced back to constraints that have been put on federal agencies for how they can do these analyses. And this document, in my mind, goes a long way towards letting up on some of those constraints, right? Because we, you know, when I was at the White House, we would go to agencies and say, well, does your cost-benefit analysis appropriately account for future generations? And they could say, well, we're just doing what OMB guidance says, right? You mentioned risk, or you could think about equity issues. Again, they wouldn't necessarily argue this is the right way to do the analysis. They would point to OMB guidelines, and this is why we did it. And in the past, that has tended to put the thumb on the scale, again, in favor of some fairly, I would say, weak regulations. Now, there's all sorts of other reasons why regulatory actions tend to be weak that this document cannot address. So again, I think it's a little bit hard to say how much change this will cost. Well, okay. So let me start at the high level, and then you can help me understand where impressions might be wrong. One way to look at this would be cost-benefit analysis. We can keep it constrained to climate and energy problems because that's really what our audience is most interested in. But the discount rate associated with regulations under this new guidance is just going to be lower. And what that means is damages that accumulate in the future are given a higher weight compared to costs which are delivered by a regulation in the near term, right? And that sort of favors higher degree of climate mitigation or, or stricter regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. So one way to read this is to say, well, the administration came in very concerned about climate change, rewriting the way that regulatory impact analysis is done, lowered the discount rate, climate matters more, and this gives you a stricter basket of regulations. Is that the right way to think about this guidance? Or are there a bunch of other changes going on here that reflect a different way of thinking about the economic impact of regulation? Well, everything you said is right, and that's that's one of many changes that could, at least in theory, affect climate and energy regulations going forward. You know, I, I think in practice, again, it's back to what I said before about the justifications for inaction. You know, you think about the Trump administration, they hung their hat on 7% discount rate for a lot of their cost-benefit analysis, which that's very high. You can't find any experts telling you that you should use a 7% discount rate, which effectively says future generations do not matter. But again, they pointed to OMB guidance to say we should do that. That is now gone in this document. So in that sense, it will take away that narrow excuse for future administrations. So I don't know. It's Discounting is a great example of, I'll give you one anecdote. At the beginning of this process, I remember having a conversation with the chief economist at OMB, who's this brilliant guy named Danny Yagan. And we started talking about discounting. And I think I was a little new. I was trying to show off a little bit, probably, and started telling him a thing or two about discounting in the context of climate change. And he let me say my piece. And then when I stopped, said something along the lines of, Noah, that's great. And if I got 50 other economists in here, they would give me 50 other 
opinions about the right way to discount. And he's exactly right. Like that discounting, as you alluded to, is sort of, it's a mixture of analysis and moral judgments, particularly when we think about long-term effects. And you're never going to get even a, you know, a homogenous group of economists who work on this topic to agree on the right way to discount. But OMB has a particular approach that they use, which is to say, we're going to focus on basically risk-free interest rates for government debt to drive discount rates, which is not uncontroversial. It's not obvious that that should be how you discount costs and benefits for climate change, for example. But if you're going to do that, you might as well do it right. And what this document does is updates the numbers. So we're actually looking at more recent financial data. And that's the main reason why you saw the decrease from the old 3% rate to the new 1.7% rate. They got rid of that higher 7% number, which used to be justified basically based on a couple different rationales. Like we should add a risk premium is one. We should be accounting for actually the rate of return on investments because government actions displace private investments as much as consumption. And this document handles both of those issues, but effectively argues that it's inappropriate to do so in the discount rate. And then there's the long-term aspects where there's actually a really good discussion in here of discounting over the long run and justifying not just using constant discount rates over hundreds of years, but why you might want a discount rate that declines over time and sort of will enable federal agencies to do that where they haven't before. It says here, if benefits or costs that occur several decades or more in the future are important to a project, such as enhancing climate mitigation and adaptation, or promoting other environmental benefits, agencies can consider using declining discount rates. So discount rate might start at, let's say for the sake of argument, 3%, but go down to 1.2 over time. Agencies should consult with OMB before using such rates. So what does this guidance mean functionally for agencies going forward, right? So it's not telling you, okay, at year 10, use this number, at year 15, use this number. How do you think agencies are going to interpret these guidances to actually try and estimate the cost and benefits associated with regulations. So there actually is a proposed schedule of discount rates over 150 years that if the original 90-page proposal isn't enough for you, there's a preamble, which is an additional 30 pages that includes that schedule. So I don't know if that'll end up in the final version as sort of a suggestion to agencies. But in general, the way these guidelines work is it's not... It's not telling agencies you have to do it this way. It's trying to nudge them in the direction to do good science, do good cost-benefit analysis, right? And the agency that puts this out, OIRA, is also kind of the policeman when these regulations come back and they can kind of give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. And this is the document they'll use to do that. So agencies tend to want to follow the guidance that's in here. But a lot of times it's not specific. There's wiggle room. And this might be one example where agencies might have a particular approach to discounting based on the specific context that the regulation is in. And that might be okay, as long as it doesn't conflict with any of the guidance that's in here. So like, put your economist hat on for a moment. And let's just like, like, why is a declining discount rate over time something that an economist might argue is appropriate for a problem like climate change? Again, a few different answers to that. So the answer that OMB hangs its hat on is 
purely empirical. Or so there, there's two general approaches to discounting. There's what's called the descriptive approach, which is basically to say, let's just go based on the preferences that we witness in society today. And then there's what's called the more prescriptive approach, which says, particularly for these sort of intergenerational problems, it tackles sort of the inevitable moral judgments that come on straight on, right? And Either way, this is a subjective choice, right? Like you can look at the market and say, okay, well, what's the discount rate that we see in the financial markets or the difference between low risk and high risk annuities? But like, you could also just say, well, I think the discount rate is 1%. You're allowed to make subjective judgments here, right? Yeah, but... The federal government does not want to admit that, even though that is absolutely true. The federal government <laughs> the federal government wants you to believe that they are not making subjective judgments when they do these analyses. So they much prefer an approach that says, we just grabbed financial data and that is an acceptable way to do things, as opposed to what economists call the pure rate of time preference. This is how we value explicitly people 100 years from now versus today. Right. You're absolutely right that either way, there's a subjective judgment underlying the, the choice you make, but a federal agency does not want to have to make that explicit. Because nor, then nor should they, they necessarily have. be able to, right? Like that's a, that might be something that you would want Congress to make. That, you know, the democratic process might want, you might want to use the democratic process to influence that kind of judgment. That's exactly right. But the way things stood before, the thumb is put on the scale, right? So if you're saying we're going with a descriptive approach and, you know, maybe we'll get into this later, but like we're going to ignore distributional issues in our cost benefit analysis, that does put your thumb on the scale in a certain direction. It's just swept under the rug in a way that it wouldn't be if, right. if you had to explicitly say, this is how much we're valuing these people or these generations. I want to talk about distribution, but let's keep on on time for just a moment and say like, what empirically would tell you, well, discount rates would go down over time if you're dealing with a multi-decade problem. So like, we're not dealing with like some regulation that benefits are realized really immediately compared to cost, but we're mm -hmm. looking at this intergenerational problem as an example. Sure. So the reason to begin with to use these sort of risk-free rates on government debt is that the idea the idea is that this is how society sort of trades off goods and services today versus in the future. Once you go out a long, long, long time, there's a lot of uncertainty. So you bake into your analysis the idea that in general, we think, well, the world has been getting richer and richer, maybe we'll continue in that direction. And that's one of the justifications for discounting is to say, yeah, a dollar today might be worth a lot less to our richer selves. Mm -hmm. As you go further and further out into the future, we just don't know. And if we are sort of averse to bad outcomes in terms of economic growth, what our models tell us is that just kind of shy away from that outcomes, we can place more weight on the potential for like low consumption states of the future. And effectively, that ends up giving you a discount rate that declines over time. So that's, again, purely using sort of empirical data and a descriptive approach, you end up with a declining rate. Whereas if you're in sort of a more prescriptive world, you would just say, look, I don't feel comfortable discounting the future of future generations just because of the date they were born. That's another way you could end up with a declining rate. Interesting. Okay. So help me unpack that a little bit. Like there's a ton of uncertainty about the future. You might say, well, we don't know that economic growth will continue in the way that it has in the past where we're basing our empirical measurements of the discount rate. 
or we don't know that the world is going to exist, or you know, we don't know that preferences are going to change. Are all those uncertainties reflected when you elect to take a declining discount rate? Is that a well-posed question? Oh, it is. It is. And I'm trying to describe this in a way that is at all understandable. This is the, <laughs> the great, the great late Marty Weitzman has maybe wrote the first paper on this. And I think the way he put it was actually the, int- the, the discount rate that you should use going forward itself is uncertain, right? So if you think about it that way, you have this range of possible discount rates that you should use going forward over time. And if you're in a world with a lot of uncertainty and things could end up not so good, and we're sort of averse to those outcomes, what you want to do is tend towards the lower end of the spectrum of that uncertainty because you want to avoid those very bad outcomes. So it's, it's essentially the idea that there's a lot of uncertainty, it's correlated with each other over times, and we're averse to bad outcomes. You put that all together, you get a declining discount rate. And what in practice, what does a declining discount rate actually mean? Well, you gave up front a good explanation of, you know, lower discount rates just mean that costs and benefits in the future will matter more compared to higher interest rates. Is it right to think about it as sort of, you know, a discount rate is like a a relative weight that you place on benefits that accumulate or costs in, in any given time window. So a declining discount rate says more or less the value we place on outcomes 25 years from now and 50 years from now, while that will decline, it doesn't decline at the same rate between what we place between next year and 25 years from now. So it sort of smooths out consideration of the future to it. Like, does it asymptote? Does it eventually get constant? Or, you know, what does the math tell you? It's all assumption driven, right? So, so <laughs> again, there, there is it's not no, a answer, no. There, I apologize. There, if, if you're trying to elicit a correct discount rate or discount rate schedule out of me, you're not going to get there because it just depends on the assumption you use. I mean, one thing I'll say is what they say in here is that this is purely an issue for long-term phenomenon. So if your costs and benefits go out 30, 40 years, they're saying, don't worry about this. Just use a constant discount rate. It's just that for longer than that, you run into these issues. And again, uncertainty exists always, but they're nodding to the fact that there's also an ethical dimension to this and the idea that we're going to use current interest rates, which is based on the preferences of current individuals, to value costs and benefits for future generations is offensive to some. Got it. And so if you think about it in in, in another way, like... For a climate regulation, right? Like you'll have benefits that are accumulating in the next century and beyond. And you don't want to, it's like, it's counterintuitive to say, well, we want to overweight those benefits because the world could be very different. It might be much richer or whatever. It's also counterintuitive to underweight them. So the goal is to try and find some way that you are reflecting that those benefits do, in a sense, matter. It's just you don't want to overweight them or underweight them. And mathematically, what that means is you have a declining discount rate. That's right. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So discount rates are always confusing. And I appreciate your continued campaign to educate me on how they work. What else in here is exciting to an an economist who thinks that we can do cost-benefit analysis in a much better way than we did before? Well, so I guess my my number one draft pick for the most important change in this document has to do with distributional weighting. Mm -hmm. So this comes from 
just the idea that as a society, we have a preference to, however you want to put it, reduce poverty, reduce inequality. You can see it in our progressive tax system, our transfer system, all of that. The question is whether those preferences should be baked into cost-benefit analysis. So effectively, that means should we treat a dollar's worth of benefits to a homeless person the same as the dollar's worth of benefits to Elon Musk, or should a dollar's worth of benefits to the homeless person matter more to right. society, right? So believe it or not, there's like a schism in the world of economists on this issue and two very different, I would call them brands or categories of cost-benefit analyses. And what this updated proposal endorses is the idea is, is basically to answer yes and to say that we can factor in distributional concerns into cost-benefit analyses. So economists are fully ready to do that, right? We have these things called utility functions that a lot of our discipline is based off of that, right, like turn monetary values into units of well-being. And this literature exists. It turns out when you do your cost-benefit analyses this way, it can be a really big deal for any regulations where the impacts might fall on lower income groups or vulnerable groups disproportionately. Exactly. So, so let me stop you there and, and ask, right? Like, so I've, I've looked at a utility function before, like the common understanding might be, well, we've all heard these things about how, you know, above a certain income, $75,000 a year or something, sort of your net happiness decreases, right? There's sort of like a, a place at which some curve of happiness based on your income reflects how much you're able to consume and save and whatever. Sort of like kind of the, like the curve levels off. So as you get a little bit of money, every incremental dollar adds a lot of welfare. And then as you get a lot of money, every incremental dollar adds slightly less, right? Because you just already have enough. Mm -hmm. This is when you talk about distributional effects, you can think about, well, costs imposed by regulations fall at on different people across the income spectrum or across the wealth spectrum. Actually, point of order, do we think about distributional effects based on income or wealth? It's a great question. And, and it can be done different ways depending on how, how you do your analysis. I mean, that this is, again, not somewhere where you're going to find a precise right answer on how to do this. But what you right. just described, this diminishing marginal utility of income or wealth or just goods in general, that is entirely uncontroversial among economists, right? We, right? we can haggle over the shape of that curve, but that curve obviously exists. Or the inflection point, right? Sure. Yeah. So is this document or is this guidance taking sides in these debates about waiting by income or waiting by, well, what does it say that federal government should do when thinking about distributional impacts of costs or benefits? It's more that the previous version of this document took a strong side. Um, Entirely and, neutral. It said, keep your distributional concerns out of your cost-benefit analysis pretty explicitly. And that's what federal agencies have always done. And to be clear, to be and to be fair, it's not that the people doing these analysis don't agree that there's a diminishing marginal value of income. The theory has been regulations are not the place to do distributional policy in our country. We have a, you know, we have a tax and transfer system that do that. So if your regulations have distributional consequences that you don't like, you just change your tax system and you combine those two things and you're better off than trying to account for it in 
your regulations. So I think reasonable people maybe could disagree about that in for sort of your run the mill problem that, that people might come across. I think it's much, much harder to defend that line of thinking when it comes to climate change, where, you know, the distributional concerns involve not just Americans today, but people in Bangladesh in 2070, right? And like the US tax and transfer system is not a particularly good way to compensate for those types of concerns. So OIRA or OMB is saying now is not that you have to do distributional analysis or distributional weighting, but it's it's giving agencies the opportunity to do that. And even that is pretty game-changing and sort of, I think, could be fairly influential because, like I said, if you agree with what I just said, I think it will cause a lot of people to go down that road, especially when it comes to problems like climate, and say, actually, the traditional approach to cost-benefit analysis doesn't make much sense in this realm. So one of the critiques that you would hear about climate regulation is that it often increases energy costs or it makes the cost of a new car higher mm-hmm. and that those costs fall disproportionately on lower-income people. Does the framework that OMB provide here allow those considerations into how regulations are judged? It does. If you're distributional weighting your benefits, you you have to distributional weight your costs as well. And you're right. Yeah. If the costs fall disproportionately on lower income populations, you know, that's effectively going to raise the aggregate costs of your regulation and push in the direction of lower net benefits. So yeah, absolutely. And in, in any way where the costs and benefits of regulations disproportionately affect sort of lower income or vulnerable populations in other way, this could make a big difference. And so you and I have followed the debate on how cost-benefit analysis are done for climate regulations for some time. We've talked about it a bunch. You hinted at one of the most controversial choices that the federal government makes. Do we count, when we think about the benefits of averted climate change, do we count those benefits in the U.S. economy or do we count them globally? Mm-hmm. Climate change is a global externality. What does this document say on those questions? It's another good example where this document is flexible in a way that the previous version was not. So the previous version, which really, you know, you could tell the people who wrote it weren't thinking about climate change necessarily. It said focus within the borders of the United States. You know, at least your sort of primary analysis should focus within those borders. There's a pretty rich discussion in this document over a couple pages for what factors you should consider when you decide sort of the geographic scope of your analysis. And, you know, if you're thinking about climate change, you'll see paragraphs that talk about, well, if you're dealing with a global externality or if part of the rationale for your regulation is sort of the reciprocity of other countries who we also want to act on, on a given problem, right. you know, a clear nod to climate change, then this might point towards a global or at least not just a domestic scope of analysis. Mm, interesting. You mentioned that since this came out, we had a release of draft regulation for the cars, the greenhouse gas emissions associated with cars and their fuel efficiency. Since this guidance came out, the administration released its draft rule for cars, right? Greenhouse gas emissions from cars. Are the principles that we see in OMB recommending in in this draft here for how cost-benefit analysis should be done, 
are those reflected in the rules that the administration's writing already, or is this do these changes take longer to set in through the administrative process? Maybe a mixed bag, but my guess is that it'll take a while, right? I mean, there are some aspects that you might see. You know, you mentioned the global scope. That's something that federal agencies have been doing for climate benefits for a long time already, even though arguably it, it, it was more difficult to square that with the previous guidance. It was sort of obvious enough that that was the right thing to do, that the agencies were just doing that anyway. Um, I haven't read all of those 688 pages that I mentioned, but one thing I did notice was that when it comes to just their baseline forecast that EPA used for where the world is heading in the absence of their vehicle standards, it was like a shocking improvement to me over where agencies have been in the past. And I guess we're, we're getting on a different topic here, but there's a there's a whole section of this document about creating baseline forecasts that I think is super important and people tend not to think about it. But whenever you have a policy evaluation, the baseline forecast is like half of it, right? The, mm. your, your policy evaluation is where the world is going to be with the policy compared to where the world is going to be in the baseline. And the way you want to build your baseline forecast is to say, where's the most likely place the world is going to end up if I don't put this regulation into place. Mm. And almost invariably, if you go back over the last two decades of energy regulations, the baseline forecasts that you see in these analyses are not a reasonable forecast of where the world is going to go over the next few decades. And that's mainly because these baseline forecasts tend to be very static, right? They tend to just, they depict the world roughly as it exists today. So one example, actually, I remember a prior version of these vehicle standards a couple of years ago, seeing sort of a baseline forecast that really assumed very little decarbonization of the electricity grid, which, you know, even a couple of years ago, it was, it was pretty obvious to everybody that our electricity grid is, is decarbonizing fairly rapidly. But if you use sort of a static, a relatively static view of the world, and that doesn't happen, then all of a sudden your justification for shifting to electric vehicles is not nearly what it would be if you were using a more appropriate baseline. So I, I go off on this tangent just to say this is one example that I saw in those new regulations mm -hmm. um, that I think whether coincidence or not, did seem to take to heart the guidance that you see here. And what I hear is like an underlying theme that the way that the federal government, which has been doing cost-benefit analysis for the last 30 or 40 years, does cost-benefit analysis, can evolve to be more dynamic, more reflective of what market actors and scholars think should be done. And we can use cost-benefit analysis in the right way when we think about long-term problems versus more near-term problems. And that this new guidance in, gives agencies more tools to make better, dynamic, contextualized assessments of the costs and benefits of regulation. That's true. And let, let me add one thing on top of that, which is I think this document also gives agencies more flexibility not to use cost-benefit analysis as a, a guiding factor in their decisions, which I think is important also, because if let's say all you know economists were all in a coma for the last 30 years and didn't know much about climate change, if you just read through this document, you would find <laughs> you would find a whole lot of fodder suggesting just that 
cost-benefit analysis and climate change are not really amenable to each other. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, like there's the document talks about, well, this cost-benefit analysis is most useful when the effects are in competitive markets without large externalities, when, you know, your time horizon is long enough where you can capture the most important benefits and costs, when just in general, the most important benefits and costs can be monetized, you know, and you mentioned things like deaths around the world and biodiversity and all these sort of conflicts and unknowns about climate damages. So I think a sort of very reasonable reading of this document would be to say, you know, maybe we should not be using benefit cost analyses for climate regulations. We do though, because we haven't been in a coma for the last 30 years. And there's a whole literature that leads us in that direction mixed with sort of regulatory history in the United States. So we do do it. And I think this document at least points us in the direction of doing better analyses. That's really interesting. I mean, like, because there I hear from you a critique that cost-benefit analysis is great if you're deciding, are we going to invest in this bridge, right? And the bridge has this a lifetime of a few decades, and it will have this benefit. It'll cost this much. It'll, you know, it'll cost this much to pay it down. But when you think about global externalities, emissions reductions, it's a tool that's not well-suited to thinking carefully about the problem because there are normative and subjective judgments that have to be made. Right. So, I mean, the models that try to estimate the benefits of greenhouse gas emissions reductions, or or another way to look at it is the damages caused by climate change. There's massive literature on this called the social cost of carbon. The government puts out a separate document with its own estimates of the social cost of carbon. Just to give you a sense of what these models are trying to do, they basically have to do projections of the entire global economy for hundreds of years, translate those into climate impacts, figure out how those climate impacts will affect economic damages across the world and over centuries, and then make all those moral slash empirical judgments about how to translate those streams of damages back to a value today. We can't do a lot of those things with with any sort of meaningful level of precision, right? So it's funny. When you look at the literature on the social cost of carbon, you see numbers that on the high end could be, you know, in the over $1,000 a ton and the low end could be close to zero. We can do a lot better than that just with heuristics, right? Like you, you, you look out over the world and you can tell actually, no, people's place a fairly high value on acting on climate change, but like, it's also not unlimited, right? People have other concerns also. And just those heuristics alone provide us with sort of a smaller range of potential outcomes than the models we use to estimate the social cost of carbon. It's just that we put a lot of weight on sort of this illusion of precision. We like these complicated models that spit out numbers that we can use because again, then our sort of judgments are not as obvious. Obvious. Yeah. yeah, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for tomfoolery when you've got these big, complicated cost-benefit models, and then they give you, at the end, they spit out an optimal temperature profile or an optimal regulation. Right. And to be clear, I think that's true for like a lot of the big risks that we face as a society. If climate change is not unique in that sense. And I think if you just think of climate change as this risk management problem that we have to address, it shouldn't be 
worrisome to us that we can't put a specific number on it, right? That's true for lots of different risks we face that shouldn't inhibit action. I just think, oh, and this is true if you look out at most of the world right now and how we're acting on climate change, it's not a coincidence that we're not trying to balance the benefits and costs of action. Specifically, we're saying, how do we avoid increasing global temperatures by a certain amount? Or how do we get on a pathway to net zero by a given date? And, you know, a lot of economists would describe that as like, ah, like a second best solution, but really it's the best we can do. And lastly, given what you have seen and where OMB is changing guidance for the purposes of evaluating the costs and benefits of climate, which we are going to do invariably, where do you see the debate and the interesting work going as the agencies take these guidances and try to apply them to different regulatory issues? Well, I mean, this goes back to the original question, right, which is how influential are these guidelines? And maybe this is depressing, maybe it isn't, but my sense is that policymakers this is not the constraining factor on policymaker decisions on climate, at least at the federal level. So I'm not sure you'll see any sort of direct impact of this going forward. I think when it comes to federal regulations, where there's just a lot of other more important factors on policymakers' minds, that said, I do think that there's a lot of indirect effects of a document like this. It just gets used all over the place. Like even, you know, in my nerdy academic world, there's countless academic papers that point to OMB guidance uh, that used to be from many decades ago, and now I think will be an updated, better version. And, and that alone is worth celebrating. All right. Well, thank you very much. No, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Noah for joining Energy 360 today to shed some light on how these changes may impact climate regulations across the U.S. government. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening.